everyone. Welcome to War Machine, the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. My name is Matt, and in this episode, you'll hear an excerpt from uh, my recent interview with Mary Jane Rubenstein for the Westar Institute's podcast, which is called Interrupted. I co-host that with Westar scholar, musician, and horticulturalist Jordan Miller. Mary Jane's most recent project is called Astrotopia, the Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. That's forthcoming from Chicago University Press. You can order it at the link you'll find in the show notes, uh, which you should do. In the full interview, we cover some of the ideas in that book. We talk about Elon Musk and his big dick space energy. We touch on technology, alternative approaches to theological method, interplanetary colonialism, political solidarity across differences, recent events in Ukraine, and the animated series Avatar. Yeah, I didn't expect that either. If you'd like to hear the full interview, uh, head over to the Interrupted podcast stream and check it out. The Westar Institute is a partner of the Radical Theology Seminar. Uh, Speaking of which, Jordan Miller uh, will be our guest for this month's seminar, where he'll lead us in a discussion on radical political theology. Go to patreon.com slash radical theology and sign up for only five bucks. So again, this is an excerpt from the Interrupted Podcast interview with Mary Jane Rubenstein. And here it is. Peace. We have been given the scientific knowledge the technical ability, and the materials to pursue the exploration of the universe. To ignore these great resources would be a corruption of a God-given ability. My name is Mary Jane Rubenstein. I teach at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, um, and have been working for the last while on the fraught intersections of religion and science. Um, I tend in particular to uh, try to attune myself to the places that religion shows up in unexpected places in the sciences. Um, So in cosmology, in astronomy, in astrophysics, um, most recently in the the science and the art and the um, economy and um, warfare of space exploration. Mm -hmm. Nice. It just came to mind just now when when uh, when we spoke last. You you told the story of um, is it like a, a live nativity scene and you had to chase a goat across the highway or something like this? Yeah, absolutely. We don't, I like that you got excited that I brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> Have there been any goat incidents in the intervening years that we should know about? Um, no, I mean, well, except a, a student came to me a couple of days ago. It was just so strange, and he was like, you know, I'm, I'm I don't know why I've, I've, I've just heard about your work. I, I don't really know you. I don't know anything, but I'm trying to write a play, and I'm, I'm trying to write about, you know, science and religion and how they're similar or different or whatever. And then I had this idea about this goat, and I was like, now hang on. We can either talk about science and religion, which is one thing and which is fine, but which is kind of boring. Um, or we can talk about goats. And he's like, really? So anyway, th- th- he's now going to write a, a thing about goats. I, I think that goats are pretty generative and, and, and pretty exciting, but um, I haven't had too many other, um, you know, live interactions with them. Okay, so fair. I mean, you don't have to stay with this line of questioning, but <laughs> have you seen there's goat yoga? 
Oh my gosh. I want so desperately to do goat yoga. And I had actually, <laughs> I was planning on it and then COVID hit. And then there was no more goat yoga. I don't know if they were worried that we were going to give the goats COVID or that like what, what the issue was. Um, but um, I would, I would be, if anybody has a good venue for goat yoga, I'm, I, it, it's, it remains one of my um, desiderata really. I'd, I'd, I'd like to get there. There's a, a family farm, not too far from me um, that, basically lost a lot of business due to COVID. Um, but because they had goats and they have lots of outdoor space, they started doing goat yoga on the farm as a way to supplement their income where people could be distanced and outside and whatnot. And do it outside. You know what? I completely take it back. I absolutely have had a goat experience. I suspect it as much. Yeah. There's this <laughs> other farm in um, kind of Wales or something like that. They also were losing all this money to COVID. So they decided that they would do um, goat Zoom bombings. And so you can, so you just like, a, like an apartment meeting, right? And you, you've organized your department meeting. And you've asked everybody to come at 1.10 p.m. Right? And everybody zooms in. And then at like 1.13, another person joins and it's a goat. <laughs> and, the, and the goat just sort of like hangs out there. Um, and, and, and the, you know, the camera is trained on the goat. And, uh, and when people are like, what is this goat doing? Why is there a goat here? The goat texts and like chats and says like, don't be rude. I'm as much of this department as anybody else. Like, it, it's... <laughs> um, so yeah, so I did, I did do that once. And that was, that was a test. Even... It's cheap too. And they're like, they'll, they'll be up in the middle of the night in Wales. If you want them to, they'll, they'll come in at any time. Yeah. I'm sure that whoever's in charge of productivity was not happy about that, but it sounds, it sounds like a good time. I think the first time I um, saw you speak was at one of the Drew interdisciplinary colloquium events right. uh, and wasn't like the title or subtitle of your paper about goat gods at the time. Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. I was trying to, um, I was trying to connect uh, Pan, that particular goat God and Christ um, and draw them together uh, to try to begin to get at the panic that, Christian philosophers seem always to display over uh, pantheism. Towards the end of the, our conversation the last time, I remember you mentioned well, I asked you what you were you know, thinking about working on next, what the next project was. I remember being a little bit surprised, actually, when you said you were you know, thinking about space exploration and you know, colonizing Mars and that kind of thing. But since, of course, I've, I've read at least this chapter out of uh, image and makes a lot more sense now. Um, <laughs> and yeah, like I just saw yesterday, there's the, the monogram forthcoming. So that's really exciting. Just out of curiosity, what, what are people going to find in the longer version that, that they don't get in the chapter in image? Right. So the chapter in image was an effort to think about, about images of the earth, about the way that we picture earth and particularly picture it from space and what we want from those space photographs um, and how what we want from those space photographs piece and into war and into factionalism and rivalries and things like that, and maybe an end to capitalism, um, is completely contradicted by what it is that we tend to do with those space photographs. Um, and I guess that the new book, which I'm calling Astrotopia, uh, reverses the gaze a bit and comes back down to earth and looks out 
at the stars, at the cosmos again, um, but at a shorter distance from like the multiverse book, um, which was looking out really, really far. <laughs> this one looks a little, a little closer. Um, and what this one is doing is trying to get at fantasies of better living off earth, better living through space. The story seems to be going that we have reached an end to the uh, possibilities of infinite growth and infinite expansion that um, capital has promised us. So like really interestingly, these entrepreneurs who are at the at the forefront of our effort to colonize space are recognizing what all of our anti-capitalists are, which is that like we have reached real limits to growth. We can't keep doing this anymore. But rather than saying, along with the critics we know well, um, therefore we have to live differently, what they say is, all right, so how are we going to live like this forever? The only way is we need more space. We need more room. We need somewhere else. Um, and so we're going to go outwards. There are a couple different models for this. Uh, with Elon Musk, we're going to colonize Mars. With Jeff Bezos, we're going to um, install rotating space cylinders kind of closer to Earth that we're all going to be living on. Um, so there are different ways of going about this. But um, in both cases, we need a frontier to keep on living in the uh, extractive and commercialized way that we do. Um, so what this book tries to do is um, tell a kind of longer story about the history and the philosophy and the theology and the mythology of the European expansion that um, produced the Americas as we now know them, that insisted themselves across the whole continent um, in the westward expansion, and that's now um, sort of lifting itself off Earth into outer space. The idea is that this new chapter of the space race is a, a like an energetic extension of the project that opened in the late 15th century and colonized the Americas. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, for how modern the story is, it's almost a tale as old as time, right? Because yeah. as you explained, there's this correlation to um, imperialism in you know, the same logic, these um, sort of heavenly inclinations, the will to dominate and so on. These things seem to animate the space race just as much as, as they have in the past. Um, and I don't know when I was reading this, I was like, I found it a little bit depressing to see how, how this pattern just reemerges over and over again, this sort of pathological quest for mastery. And it's always done in the language of, you know, somehow making the world uh, a better place, bringing about justice or, you know, even saving the world. And, uh, yeah, sometimes I'm just tempted to think that's baked in and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, and then I get down on myself for being too, uh, you know, fatalistic and pat passive. And then on the other part, I was like, well, what are we going to do? Let, all right, let's tear the whole fucking thing down. But all these different positions that I keep kind of circling around all share a, a, uh, sort of apocalyptic vision. Is this something that you think about? Are there, are there better options, um, mm -hmm. than the kind of techno optimism that you critique in the book or, or the pessimism of like a, of, of a Calvin Warren or other kinds of pessimists? Yeah. So in the um, in the image chapter, I I'm I'm right there with you. I really end in a, on a pretty dismal note. I can't see a way out. Everything looks pretty pretty terrible. And I actually think that the that Afro pessimist theorists um, have a good way of at least inhabiting that refusal to take refuge in a bright shiny future somewhere. Um, so I think that that's that's actually quite useful, even though it's uh, dismal. In the new book, I, I try to 
resist just ending there, even though I think it's an important place to be. Um, and look also to counter-futural narratives, um, particularly in uh, Afrofuturisms and Indigenous futurisms, particularly in science fiction that uh, imagines ways of living either on Earth or in fact elsewhere um, that would, would do things differently. I think part of the reason that I'm Part of the reason that I've had to write about this is that I've been just so astonished by it as as you've been saying that like the 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 oldness of it and the unreconstructedness of it and the recalcitrance of it. It's just like, are we really doing this again? Like, are we really replaying? Could it, is it possible? I mean, every single course that any of my undergrads takes dismantles this narrative. Um, and here we are just advancing it without any kind of self-critical gesture at all, um, except to say like, oh, well, we should have some black astronauts or something like that. I mean, it's just like absolutely disgusting, right? Um, we should have some indigenous astronauts. These are, these are the, these are the ideas. These are the big ideas. We're going to throw some folks of color on the rockets and then we'll be fine. I, I've been just appalled by, again, the sort of just untrammeled reassertion of of global mastery on now a cosmic scale and this has been a large part of the reason that i felt like i couldn't not write this book and the, you know part of a book that came before it um but there are ways if you attend in particular to fiction in particular to kinds of fiction that often don't make it into you know the canon of of, of literature ways of just of, of doing things differently, of inhabiting worlds differently, of building worlds differently. Um, and I know that it is probably not going to do much <laughs> to do such imaginings, um, but I think that it's still important to hold out the possibility um, and to insist, in fact, that there are other ways to do the things and we don't need to do them this way. And in the meantime, to call out the utter hypocrisy, as again, you were saying that, of um, pretending that the only way to say save humanity or save the planet or save whatever it is we want to save is to frack the moon and mine asteroids and open up a brilliant new economy in outer space. Oh yeah. What was that recent movie that touched on that? It was um, on Netflix um, where they're going to mine the uh, meteor. Did you see that one? Yeah. I, I keep not seeing it because I'm so scared. It's um, it's the, maddening. You're going to love it. I know. I know. I know. It's uh, up in the air. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, no, I haven't yet watched it, but this is, but that, I mean, it's, it's integral to the whole plan and it's and this is not, and again, another thing that makes this chapter such a straightforward extension of European imperialism is that what we've got is national interests being heavily supplemented and subsidized by private interests. Um, and the only way to get private interests to bolster our efforts our like you know, nationally based efforts and internationally based efforts in outer space is to promise them a decent return on their investments and the only way to promise them a decent return on their investments is to say there are gold there's gold in those asteroids we have the right and the ability um, to take those resources uh, to sell those resources to use those resources they are resources right that this is already a this is already a, a metaphysical uh pre that their resources to begin mm -hmm. with. Um, everything, everything, everything hinges on, on mining the asteroids. The stuff that you were just saying around the speculative fiction that isn't necessarily in the canon and kind of how that supplements your understanding of these things got me thinking about um, 
the excerpt of the new book that's in Metopolis and the stuff that you say in there about utopianism and no place and kind of the, the critical edge that you use to talk about that. But there's also kind of a utopian vision in a lot of that literature as well. Um, I'm thinking uh, not in terms of literature, but um, kind of experimental projects like the the Earthship project in Taos, New Mexico, for instance, where it's an attempt to like do the terraforming thing, um, but here on Earth and, you know, creating utopian community. Um, I'm, I'm, anyway, I'm just kind of struck by that, that tension about good utopia, bad utopia. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, you're right. It just to some extent, I'm trying to, um, unseat the utopianism of Musk and Bezos by means of like counter utopianisms. Absolutely. I don't think, I, I don't think it's possible to demonize utopianism or heterotopianism or as a genre, um, because I think it's so important to do the work of imagining what an ideal society would look like if you could find an ideal society. Um, the difference is that the utopian literature that's halfway decent tends to recognize the boundaries of its own self-construction and tends to realize that it necessarily involves dystopian elements in it and to get clear about what those things are, right? We can have this kind of society, but it means we have to establish this order of secret social scientists who like every once in a while kill somebody who falls out of the vision or like, like there's a, you can see where the edges are um, in a way that the unself-aware utopian will not let you see the edges, right? It's just 72 degrees all the time on Bezos's rotating shopping malls in space. It's perfect. And no mosquitoes. And no mosquitoes. Won't it be fantastic? Won't it be fantastic? Whereas when you look at Ursula Le Guin's rendition of this kind of world, she does it in the 70s. She shows what it's going to look like. And there are no mosquitoes and it's 72 degrees all the time. You come to realize really quickly what the problems are of leaving out the mosquitoes, right? So you can see the costs of utopia, I think, in um, in fiction in ways that the unselfconscious messianism that we're hearing these days doesn't, doesn't allow us to see. So as I mentioned uh, in the beginning, if you'd like to hear the full episode, Check it out over on the Interrupted podcast stream and subscribe if you are so inclined. Thanks go to the Westar Institute for sharing the content. And thanks to you for listening. See you next time.